Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. Don't fool yourself into thinking that our actions and our decisions don't have consequences. They do have consequences. And our Lord God, who is living and active and cares about you today and what you do today and what you do today really matters. It doesn't matter. The world tries to lull us to sleep. The world tries to promulgate this abhorrent lie that what we do today you know, it's really okay. It doesn't matter. We're overthinking it when we think that we need to be obedient to God and choose the way that is righteous to God. And this was the lie to the very first man and woman on earth in Genesis 3 from Satan in the garden. Was it really doesn't, you know, what God said doesn't really matter all that much. That is a lie. That is a damnable lie. And our God is living and active today, matters greatly in the eyes of our God. He cares about us utterly and completely, and so enormously is his capacity for love to us. This matters so much to God. And in this world that we're living that tries to lull us to sleep. And isn't it nice just to, just to be comfortable? Why don't, why don't you just come over here and, and just lie down and, and just do what feels good for a little bit? This is the propaganda from this world in opposition to our God. And what you do today, what you think today, about God and about other matters, either with God in consideration or not with God in consideration, and what you do with your actions and what you speak with your mouth really matters. It has direct ramifications in your life and with regard to the kingdom of God. God is writing his story with or without us, but God wants us, and what we do will either build righteousness in from our contribution to the kingdom of God, or it will omit that opportunity. And God wants us to be righteous, and God wants us to be holy, and God wants us to be set apart for his glory. Let's open in prayer, and then today we'll be in Genesis 14. Wonderful God powerful God, almighty God, the one who sees and knows and the one who calls us out from this world, 
from all of its lies and all of its division and all of its destruction and all of its fleshly desires, God, you call us out with a firm call. It's a bold call. It's not a a subtle call like the world tries to, to call us over here to this corner and over here to this corner. God, you stand alone. And in boldness, you call us out to live for your glory. To live in righteousness and to live in holiness and to live a life that is set apart in the way that we think, in the way that we act, in the way that we move our bodies and in the words that we say. Oh Lord, let us be moved by you to live in that way and to follow our powerful and almighty God in the writing of your story, in the writing of your glory. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me, please, to Genesis 14. And we'll read the first half of the chapter today. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zor. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea, also called the Dead Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Raphim in Ashtaroth Karnaim the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shabbath Karathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pets. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and of Aner, And they were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them. Folks, that is a very large number of men 
born in his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. This was absolutely a time not foreign, I would say, to any of us, political upheaval. There was king of this city, king of this city. Cities had their own kings. Nations had their own kings. And there are areas of this world, present day, where kings rise up, nations rise up, presidents, whatever it is, and they're all about doing battle with another nation. They're all about showing a force of dominance, or they want to take the natural resources from another nation, so they invade, so they go to battle. As we read the Old Testament, we see Israel going to battle over and over and over and over again. In First and Second Samuel, you see this nonstop. And this is simply the way of man, it would seem, in worldliness here on this earth, that there are nations and there are people groups, tribal groups, who were always essentially at war. Why? Why are they always at war? What brings them to the fact that it must be violent opposition? I think this speaks intricately to the nature of the heart of man and what is in the hearts of these men who lead these nations, who lead these tribes, who are always at war. Is it perhaps that they have no regard for God? Is it perhaps that they have no regard for contentment, which I do believe is something explicitly given from the Lord? Yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely at the very least, we can say that. What are the other reasons? There's probably hundreds of them, thousands of them, for why nations rage against other nations. But this does not speak to godliness. This does not speak to righteousness. This does not testify to the greatness of our God. This does not make much of God. Unless, as we see a number of times in the Old Testament, this is explicitly directed by the word of our Lord. But in our present day world, I'm not sure that that specifically is the case. Can't say that with 100% certainty because I'm not everywhere on this planet and God is still living and active and God speaks and God moves and God definitely protects his people. And there's a larger story in that than simply battle or war. But one thing that we know is nation will rise against nation. It's the way of worldliness. This is the pattern of the world. This is the pattern of paganism in the time of the Old Testament, not even specifically in the storyline of the Old Testament. We can tell from other almanacs and other historical documents, uh, Josephus, for example, about the other people groups in history at this time. They were constantly at war. 
And there are those who, again, out of either arrogance or dominance or whatever it is, are about intimidation and they're about destruction. Their keen eye is really set on destroying other people. And who does that sound like? We've talked about that a couple of times. John 10.10. That's the way of Satan. Satan's about stealing, killing, destroying. He's a deceiver. This is what he does. He works in darkness. He doesn't come into the light. He doesn't want to be seen in the light. He doesn't want to be seen in a court of justice as to be accountable to justice. This is the way of Satan. And then there are those who are all about themselves. There are those who are active, proactively living in opposition to God. It's not so much about just division. It's really because they want to oppose God. This is also the way of Satan, but this is the way of so many pagan, so many pagan groups, so many pagan tribes, so many pagan nations, so many pagan religions. The anti-biblical religions live, they thrive, they promote their doctrine, so-called doctrine, in opposition to God, to our God, the God. There's only one God. That's our God. That's the God of the Bible. There will always be division. Are we people? Am I a person of division? Am I a person who even thinks that that's acceptable? Or not? Am I someone who thinks that destroying someone else is acceptable, whether I'm involved in it or not? Do I, do I think, in the theory, do I think that that's acceptable or not? Because there's a huge caution here. Our God believes in the sanctity of human life. Yes, the Bible warns over and over and over and over again about people who would oppose God. It warns over and over and over again about people who would take a pattern or a course or a belief against the sanctity of life. People who are consumed with murder in their mind, consumed with anger, which leads to murder, the Bible says, in their mind. And that's why Jesus says that if we struggle with anger, that we have to keep it in check that we have to surrender it to the Lord and then walk away from our anger. Just like so many sins, any sin that we're struggling with, God calls us to lay it at his feet, at the throne of God and say, I believe in Jesus. Therefore, I'm surrendering this to him because I know his shed blood on the cross paid it once for all, the penalty for sin. Therefore, I don't have to carry this around anymore as part of my identity in Christ because Christ defeated that. 
and I don't need to be angry anymore. That doesn't always mean it goes away immediately or that you never struggle with it again. But God says, this is a dangerous road. Like so many sins, anger is a dangerous road that leads and corrupts your mind to the point where eventually you think destruction is okay, that destroying someone is okay. God says, no, no, absolutely not. I'm calling you out to be holy and set apart. Like so many sins, we can look at it or we can think about it this way. You struggle with name the sin. You don't want to do that anymore because that is the way that the world lives who does not believe in God. They think that's okay. They think that's a pattern and a lifestyle that you can live in and it's completely acceptable. But we are Christians who believe in the living God and we are transformed by the Holy Spirit and by his scripture and we cannot live like the world. God calls us out from the world. God says, absolutely not. There is a clear distinction. The world does not cozy up to the line in the center. Christians do not cozy up to the other part, uh, the other side of the line in the center as though either of those were acceptable. God says, no, I'm calling you out to be holy and set apart. What does it mean that our God is holy? Think about holiness for a second. Does holiness mean that our God who created all things and who set the standard for righteousness and purity and morality and his glory thinks that if we just kind of think about sin sometimes, that that's acceptable, that... Uh, that he would have any, any concept himself of proximity getting closer to where sin was present. Absolutely not. Because God is absolutely holy. He's absolutely pure. He's absolutely of life. And he is absolutely of the light and of the day, the Bible says. This is our God. He does not dwell in the middle grounds. He doesn't try to make excuses or make, make reasons why he can get close. See, this is the problem with the human mind in this world. God calls us out, we're to be set apart, we're to be holy, we're to be of a completely different mindset than this world, and yet, and yet, and yet, we are still struggling with the things of this world. And it's not just the things of this world, in quotes. It's the things that this world lives as a lifestyle that they give acceptance to proudly. It's not just something that they do, it's something that they boast about. They boast about their anger. They boast about their lust. They boast about their greed. They boast about their jealousy. They boast about their affairs. They don't care. 
They boast about it. And it's absolutely disgusting in the eyes of the Lord. And that is why we are to live holy and set apart lives, called out from this world, to live lives that are utterly transformed in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, the way that we move. We are to live a life that shows all of those people that we are about the glorification of God. They are actively living in opposition to God, and we are to be living about the glorification of God. Totally and utterly different. What do we see here about Lot? Let's pick this up again. I touched on it before. Verse 11. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we already know that Lot chose to make his home, it says, settled there, that he chose to settle in the land of Sodom, the city of Sodom, where Genesis 13, 13 reminds us, that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. It matters where you choose to make your home, folks. And I'm not saying specifically in a nation, I'm saying locally. We talked about this before with Lot a little bit. Where do you choose to build your community? If you're building it in, an, in a very challenging area spiritually, if you're choosing to make your house or live in a, in a tiny localized area that is extremely challenging spiritually, I would caution hard against that. This is what Lot did. Well, even worse than that, because it said that they were great sinners against the Lord. What is the word that the ESV uses here? In 1313, wicked, that the people of Sodom were wicked. And Lot was following God and he chose to make his home in Sodom. So a word of caution to all of us as Christians or seekers. It really matters where you choose to make your home. It's not that you can't have a ministry wherever you go. It's not that you can't bring the light of Christ and the light of God to wherever you go. But not only is it going to be extremely challenging, we have to be on guard against wickedness. It matters which local body that you, you live under in unity. Because in Sodom, if they were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, then he would have sub been submitting himself to a city government that was wicked, great sinners before the Lord. The Bible talks about submitting ourselves to the governing bodies because any governing body is something that either God has established or God has allowed to be established. But still, 
You are choosing, you're electing to submit yourselves to a governing body that is wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Don't do that. And it matters whether or not your community submits themselves to God. It matters whether each one of us individually submits ourselves to God. And as men and as women, we are called to lead our children lead our families in the worship of God, in the submission to God. As men, we are called to lead our wives in submission to God. And the community that we build and the community that we relate to on a regular basis, i.e. the word relationship, someone that you're building time with on a weekly basis, constantly, constantly, in communication. These people in your life, it's important whether they're submitting themselves to God. I'm not saying you can't have non-Christian friends. Of course, I'm not saying that. I think it's good to spend, regularly spend time with people also who are not Christians, but I'm saying that the people who have an effect on your mind, who have an effect on your heart, who have an effect on the way that you live your life should be other Bible-believing, Christ-believing, worshiping believers. Because it has an effect on your life. And God calls his children, like a shepherd, to be united in him and to live in him and to follow him. That's the first words that Christ says to us. Follow me. Follow me. Are we around people who are helping us follow him? Let us also remember the scripture here. There are words of caution in the scripture who not to spend time with and who to spend time with. Proverbs 24, 1 says, Be not envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. We need to remember that though it may appear that evil people are wealthy or can be wealthy, that they don't have a care in the world, or that they live very long lives, or that they live long, healthy lives, our God says, do not be envious of evil men. Why? Because they stand in opposition to our God. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? How much lawlessness do we see being accepted in our culture today? Here in America, we see that on the rise every single day. If you like to read news headlines, you will see it more and more every single day of the news. Because lawlessness is now vastly, very quickly on the rise in America. Second Corinthians says, what partnership has righteousness, which is what God calls us to with lawlessness. There is none. There's none. 
Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now that's obviously at the right time and in the right context for exposing the unfruitful works of darkness. But it says, take no part. Proverbs 22, 24, and 25 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. There are those who are seeking and living a lifestyle of things and ways and patterns of opposition to God. And the Bible reiterates that those patterns will lead to destruction, that those patterns will have consequences in their life, and that if we join them in those patterns, the same will be true of us. And God calls us out from that. James 4.4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You can't have it both ways. You can't. That's why there's an opportunity cost to choosing Christ. To submitting your life to Christ, you are giving up your rights to the things of this world, to the value system of this world, to chasing after the things that this world chases after and does so in opposition to our God. You're saying, no, money doesn't matter the most. God matters the most. You're saying, no, sex doesn't matter the most. God matters the most. You're saying, no, my career, my status, my titles, my family, the success, quote unquote, success, whatever that would mean, of myself or of my family doesn't matter the most. God matters the most. And James 4 has a harsh word of caution. That word enmity means hatred. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's why God calls us out from the world. He doesn't call us with the world. God doesn't call us among the world or in proximity with the world or say that, yeah, it's okay. You can get right up to that line of what quote-unquote Christian culture would say would be unacceptable, but just don't step over that line. No. If you're a child of God called out from this world by our God, you're going to be running to the far spectrum where God is. You're not going to want to dwell in the middle ground. What did he say to the church in Laodicea in Revelation? I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, what did he say? I spit you out of my mouth. God even wished in that scripture that they were 
like the world, utterly and completely against him rather than dwelling in the middle ground. Because that way, they would have at least been honest about who they were. And I think there's a lesson in that for all of us to think about the different areas of our life. Because we still do struggle with temptation. We still do struggle with sin. We still do struggle in our human minds, here in the world, about different things and what we lull ourselves to believing is acceptable. And in those areas, God is calling us out. God is calling us out and saying, come out. Come out from the lies of this world. Come out from the deception. That is the way of Satan. He is a deceiver. That is what he does. Those are the lies that he tells. Come out. And glorify your God. And find freedom. And find life. And find light. In God alone. Abram takes action in verse, get to the right verse here, verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew. Interesting. Abram now has a title, the Hebrew. It's almost a point of distinction or a title of set-apartedness. Who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive. Kind of like when God called him. When God called Abram, he responded like that. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Abram took action. He didn't waste time. He acted like a shepherd. Servant leaders are shepherds. What does a shepherd do? A shepherd looks after its flock. This is biblical imagery time and time again of our Lord. This is biblical imagery of both God in the Old Testament and then Jesus in the New Testament. That we are to have a, a servant-type leadership, a servant-based mentality of leadership, as shepherds who, and what do shepherds do? They care. They care. That seems so foreign in our, our present day. I, I don't know why it does. This is utterly biblical, and this has been for all time in God's family and in God's way and in God's spirit and in God's story. Shepherds care. 
They care for the flock. They care for their well-being. They care for their safety. They care for their, their sanctity of their life. They care about their life. They care about how the sheep are eating. They care about how the sheep are, are drinking enough fluids. They care about their, what they're thinking. Now I'm not talking about sheep. I'm talking about humans. But shepherds are attentive. And like a father's heart, they're looking after those in their care. The men are called to look after their family and act with love and compassion. And a patriarch looks after his greater family because he is a patriarch of the greater family. Let me read something to you from Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. We're talking about a different time period now. Just put a pin in that and go with me on this. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all their places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. 
There they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. He's drawing a distinction there. I will feed them in justice. This is the heart of the Lord God. Here in Ezekiel 34, he's calling out, again, this is a different time in the Old Testament. This is a, a different a different issue altogether, but he's calling out those who were supposed to lead his people on earth, and they did not do so. They lived for themselves instead of giving their lives in service to God and living for the benefit of the people of God, which is why God called them to live for the benefit of the people of God, to lead the people of God in worship of God, in love and in sacrifice and in service and in community, to know that your brother and your sister in Christ are made in the image and the likeness of God. Therefore, you are to adamantly be about their welfare and their benefit and mostly about their building up of each other in the Lord. God calls us to usher each other to the Lord Jesus, to our Lord God, the one who is to be about our entire life. Because God values human life. And he values human life above all the rest. Because he has put eternity in the hearts of men because we're created in his image and likeness, because we're given dominion, and because he calls us out to live lives, not in the ways of this world, but in glory to God. And God is the good shepherd, and he will show us how to be good shepherds. Abram went in pursuit of Lot because he acted like a shepherd. He was under God's instruction and God's leadership, and God called him in servant leadership to go after him. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, 318 of them, plus Abram, 319, or perhaps 318 also included Abram, went against these large armies and defeated them and pursued them to Hobeth, north of Damascus. Then he brought back not just Lot, all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, the women and the people. Our God is living and active. Our God, the great shepherd, is living and active, and he wants us to be as he is, living and active. Wake up, O sleeper, wake up. 
God is calling you out. You are to live a life of holiness that is pleasing to God. Righteousness. Be full of mercy and grace. Forgiveness. Let forgiveness be at the very forefront of your character. Because the world is not like that. We are to be quick to forgive. Prudent. Prudent. But quick to forgive. The disciple comes to Jesus and says, how many times, Jesus, should I forgive my brother? He was asking. I think, one, because he wanted to know how Jesus would respond. But two, I think he really was wrestling with the concept of forgiveness. If my brother wrongs me, do I really have to keep forgiving him? And how did Jesus respond? Seventy times seven. Now, both 70 and seven are biblical numbers. These are representative numbers, not necessarily literal. And in the Jewish teaching here, in your study Bible or your footnote may say this, 70 times seven is analogous, as we best interpret, for times without number. So how many times am I to forgive my brother or sister in Christ? Jesus says times without number, i.e. always. Again, dependent on the offense, it does not mean that you forget. It does not mean that there are, should not also be a lifestyle of repentance from this person, dependent upon how close the relationship is with you. And I would think that repentance would always be prudent. But again, I'm saying marriage is different than someone that you just met. But we are to have an attitude of forgiveness. Why? Because you think about how much our Lord Jesus Christ hanging there on the cross forgave you and I for. And that should radically transform how we view giving forgiveness to other people. Because Jesus forgave us for every sin that we've ever committed in that moment on the cross. And it wasn't over in one second. It lasted for hours. He endured incredible pain and suffering and separation from the Father, yes, but for a moment, for you and for me. And when we grasp that and when we understand that, that will radically transform how you view giving forgiveness to other people. And what a beautiful testimony that is in the eyes of the world, because I honestly think the most people in the world who are living in the world and do not profess faith in Christ struggle very hard with forgiveness. Why? Because they live for themselves. Because pride, whether they will say it or not, or whether it, it lives in such great extent, specifically in their individual life or not, is king. Pride is king. Because they do not believe that they're under anyone else's authority. Therefore, pride is the default. God calls us out of that. And God calls us to look after those in our care. 
And God calls us to love those in our care. And not just love them like cursory love, but love them extravagant love. God loved us extravagantly. Jesus loved us extravagantly on the cross. Jesus loves us extravagantly now, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, ruling and reigning forevermore. And what a day when we will get to see him face to face. Our great shepherd, our great God, who has a plan and he's carrying it out. Let us live in a way where we are called out from this world and in glory to God. Let's pray. Holy God, you call us to be holy because you are holy. Be holy because I am holy, you say. Because you know that in holiness, in righteousness, there is true life. For the theory that each action has a consequence. And each action either has a good consequence, a positive consequence, or it has a bad consequence, a negative consequence. God, you know. Because you created all of these things. You created the structure, you create our life, you create our human mind, you create our heart, you create our body, you create our feelings, you create our emotions. You know what is the way of goodness and you know what is the way of wickedness. And it is only in following your laws and your commandments that we have the good, that we have the righteousness, that we have the positive result. We were explicitly created by you to live for you, to glorify you, to think about you, to pray to you, to praise you, to worship you, and to preach your story to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a hurt, to a dying world, to a world that is so desperate and living for everything but you that they so desperately need just that. They need you. Let us be changed by the Holy Spirit every single day. Pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in Genesis 14.